There's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends. But who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions, and we get real answers, all originally recorded live. Hi, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Nada Youssef, and you're listening to Health Essentials Podcast by Cleveland Clinic. Today, we're broadcasting from Cleveland Clinic main campus here in Cleveland, Ohio, and we're here with Dr. Stephen Gordon. So nice to have you today. Well, thank you, Nat. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Dr. Gordon is the chairman of the Department of Infectious Disease in the Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute and also the professor of medicine in the Lerner College of Medicine of Case Western Reserve. And today, we're talking about antibiotic resistance and superbugs. And please remember, this is for informational purposes only, and it's not intended to replace your own physician's advice. So recently, CDC raised the alarm over an outpouring of drug-resistant superbugs infecting 3 million Americans annually and killing four people every hour. Drug-resistant superbugs kill 35,000 people each year, according to the CDC. So let's start by talking about superbugs. What does superbugs even mean? Well, thanks, Nat. I think I want to pull back a little bit by saying my comments are going to be somewhat biased. As an infectious disease physician, um, this is something that is top of mind for us all the time mm -hmm. in terms of infections and treatment. What I want to say is that um, the CDC report, which we'll get to, what we care about most is patient outcomes. Um, and my background, as you said, is infectious disease. And I always kind of grew up interested in microbiology. Mm -hmm. uh, my mentors, uh, where I went to residency, uh, had trained at CDC and, and again, full disclosure, uh, I trained at CDC as well, so I do think it's important for the public to know uh, that this is a what we would say an emerging threat, but also an opportunity. So I don't want to scare anybody. Sure. Having said that, if you look at the CDC report, uh, which was just released last month in November 2019, I think it's a great document um, in terms of uh, measured, mm -hmm. uh, but also pointing the importance of this uh, globally, not just to the individual patients, to the states, but as they determine that this is a one health thing. So although they state, again, the estimates, and this comes from uh, a variety of data, mm -hmm. that yes, people are in America dying of drug-resistant uh, microbes uh, in this case. If you look at the WHO estimates, by 2050, if trends continue, they state that uh, by 2050, 50 million people globally may die of drug-resistant uh, infections. So I think, um, as I said, Okay, the numbers are there, uh, but as Stalin says, you know, those are statistics. But all of us are affected, I think, individually. Um, and at the bedside, we see that. So as a clinician, um, when we are looking at people with proven or suspected infections, our mind is focused on that patient, on the outcomes. We like to go into an evaluation of someone with a proven or suspected infection with our armamentarium. Uh, and if we're focusing primarily now on what the CDC report did, bacteria and fungal, uh, our biggest armamentarium uh, is often uh, antibacterials or antimicrobials, per se. We want to be assured that at least there's a good chance that they're going to be effective against the things we treat. Right. And all of us get a little nervous when those options decrease. Now, the other impact of resistance, meaning that the antimicrobials, the things we use to treat proven or suspected infections, are no longer effective, is we tend to use more. We tend to use mm -hmm. which tends to lead to more expensive empiric therapies, mm -hmm. which tends to lead to more toxicity. And from the patient's point of view, also more cost, direct cost. Sure. 
But again, our focus, CDC focus, is really on health uh, and wellness, and we'll get into that. Okay. But yes, these, um, these emerging and present threats are out there, and it, we are mindful about that because it does affect how we manage our patients, inpatient and outpatient. Sure, sure. Great. So can you take a moment to first explain the purpose of bacteria in our body, both good and bad, how they function? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So, you know, we tend to be always focused on things that affect us. Mm -hmm. Human beings tend to be selfish. You know, it's very anthropomorphic. Mm -hmm. But we live in a community. We live in a community, uh, you know, an ecosystem. And we have to remember that microbes uh, existed before we were here and will exist when we're gone. Right. The other thing to remember is even in our own bodies, we harbor probably two to three times log higher DNA of microbial DNA than human DNA. Um, and so there is this, what we'd say, this ecosystem that goes on. And as everyone knows now, there's a big research and development in the microbiome now, the community of organisms, which can include bacteria, fungal, but also other things mm -hmm. in terms of viruses. Very interesting research going on to that in health and wellness. So most of the time, we're not at war um, in this regard. There's mm -hmm. a symbiosis. Bacteria in our guts pr produce vitamins like vitamin K, necess necessity things. In some of these bacteria that uh, also keep other things out. Mm -hmm. Now, occasionally, they can become pathogens or be introduced, even our own, and that's where infections and disease can result. Okay. Uh, and so we like not to say we're, it's a war on pathogen. We don't like using those metaphors. But more, how do we live in harmony, so to speak, sure. and obviously uh, to control those things that can cause disease or spread within our communities? So would you say superbugs is a natural evolution of germs then? So superbugs, I think, when we talk about, or when the CDC is talking about superbugs, we're really talking about um, potential pathogens with increasing resistance. Okay. So it doesn't necessarily mean that these bugs are more virulent, such as the um, Ebola or things right. that have a high rate of, of fatality, mm -hmm. but it means from a clinical point of view, our armamentarium to effectively treat if they cause infections is limited. Uh, in some cases, very limited. Okay. And that makes us, makes us all a little anxious, yes. kind of going into a, uh, if you're going into a gunfight with, with, uh, you know, with nothing to battle there. Sure. Uh, but it also creates some innovation. And again, it's creating a lot of also basic research and understanding. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have not been in the antimicrobial era for very long. Uh, you know, technically speaking, penicillin was put into the arms of civilians. And, you know, it, it was a war effort, but in the late 40s and 50s, and we've seen, obviously, a plethora of antimicrobials. And there was a time when the Surgeon General felt that maybe the era of infectious diseases was over. Um, me standing here with a job obviously pushes back against that. Yeah. So I think this is a dynamic situation, uh, and I think that our, our approach now is much different, much more sophisticated. Um, we are, have a plan in the States uh, as well as globally, of surveillance. Um, that is to say, you can't manage what you don't measure. So these are um, making sure uh, if there's outbreaks of things and ongoing surveillance. Uh, this happens in terms of foodborne pathogens, other types of pathogens. Containment, um, obviously antimicrobial development and using those wisely or trying to use those more, more wisely, as well as ba basic science research, uh, which I think is extremely important. So I remain optimistic here uh, in terms of this. Yeah. Having stated that, if you look at the top five pathogens that they put on uh, as urgent, meaning we require aggressive uh, uh, attention, mm -hmm. and this isn't always about that they're killing more people or affecting more people. It has to do with some criteria in terms of potential for spread, mm -hmm. what the potential might look like in the future, and also what we have in our armamentarium. 
And if you look at that list, again, the CDC had 18 pathogens in their, what we call their hit list uh, that was published. Um, the, five, the five that are interesting, one is a community pathogen, uh, Neisseria gonorrhea. Uh, so this wow. is a sexually transmitted infection. Why it's on the list is, although we have treatment, now about half of the million cases that are diagnosed in the United States are resistant to one antibiotic. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's, a, uh, it's kind of a little warning here that if that antibiotic is rendered no longer effective, we'll, we may be in trouble there. And that's why I, I think that made the list. And again, sexually transmitted infections uh, control. There are, are ways that we can obviously prevent those. Right. Uh, and we'll get to that in the prevention piece. The second is a new bug, so to speak, and actually only caused about 300 infections in the United States in 2018, and that's something called Candida aureus. Now, why is that on there? Well, again, I think that was on there because it's a relatively new identified organism causing infections in the States. Mm -hmm. It may have had its origin in uh, other parts of the world. It's hard to control, it can spread easily, and in a certain number of patients can cause uh, infection. So I said this is kind of the new hit, uh, and it is resistant uh, to a lot of our antifungals, not all of them. And so that's an, another interesting one that made the list. Um, there's another one that most people have probably heard about, Clostridioides difficile, which is our, probably our most common healthcare-associated infection in this country. It can affect both patients, inpatient and outpatient. Mm -hmm. It's a direct effect usually of antimicrobials used for other reasons. Mm -hmm. So this is the C. diff or C. things diff. of this nature that I think most people are aware of. It's a, yeah. It can be a complication of all antimicrobial treatments, so we're aware of that as well. It can also spread and it can also cause severe disease. Yeah. Uh, so that's on there. Yeah. And the last one in the urgent category, well the last two have to do with resistance to a certain class of antibiotics. So these are Usually uh, bugs, the Enterobacteraceae and Acinetobacter, resistant to a certain class of antibiotic, the carbapenems, um, that are usually found morally healthcare-associated infections. Mm -hmm. um, they don't affect a huge number of, of patients, but again, difficult to treat, options limited, uh, and this is our carbapenem-resistant Acinetobacter mm -hmm. and our carbapenem-resistant uh, Enterobacteraceae. Uh, and so those are the, the top five. So those are not most common? Not necessarily, okay. right? I mean, the criteria have to right. do with, uh, you know, it's kind of like, a, I wouldn't say a, a beauty contest, but right. it has to do with uh, what's a potential threat, mm -hmm. how easily they spread, sure. what patient population are they treating, and what are our potential options for treatment. Okay. Um, is Ebola on that list too? No, remember, it's uh, CDC, <laughs> it's a great question. I mean, CDC's list, uh, this list of antimicrobial resistant was um, limited to bacteria and fungi. But as you know, the most common infections in the community are viral. Right. Uh, this gets to influenza, things like RSV. Uh, so those are important yes. or, uh, in terms of this. Yes. You mentioned Ebola. You, there are things like SARS. There are things like, right. obviously, uh, Zika in terms right. of this nature. So right. it's not to leave those off, okay. no parasites. <laughs> but, but the focus of the CDC report was really uh, bacteria and fungal. Okay. So I want to go back to like what antibiotics do to our body. So... Antibiotics, do they kill, kill both bad and good germs in the body? It's a great question. I mean, so there's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, and so when we talk about antimicrobials, um, there are different classes that generally attack different, uh, what we say, segments of, of antibiotics, of microbes. Generally, when we talk about bacteria, we talk about gram-positive and gram-negative. has to do with their cell walls. Okay. And the antimicrobials we choose generally uh, can branch to both. Um, and so that's what we, we treat in terms of this. Okay. Now, having said that, it's not a threading a magic bullet. 
It, the mechanisms of actions here can affect the cell wall. They can affect other things uh, in terms of mechanisms of replication. Uh, some kill the microbes, some stun them in terms of this. But it will affect other organisms in our microbiome. And most of us know that because if you, you know, with children, if they get on antibiotics, you can see fungal infections in terms of diaper rashes. Yeah. People can get a thrush in their mouths when they're on uh, antibiotics. That's the fungus because you're killing off a lot of the bacteria. Uh, and so it just makes sense that uh, nature doesn't like a void. If you wipe out a certain population, something else, something will, else will, will, will pop up in there. That makes sense. So can any species of bacteria turn into a superbug? Well, any species of bacteria can become resistant to okay. our antimicrobials, no matter how well we use them. Um, and this gets to what is the mechanism of resistance? So um, we all believe in, okay, we, we believe in kind of Darwinism, and you can think of it as selective pressure. So uh, our, micro, our microbiology, the microbiome, they just want to continue to grow and develop sure. uh, in terms of this nature. They're, they are compete with different niches, mm -hmm. uh, and they can send their genetic material, uh, what we would say as they grow, you know, just through replication. Sure. But they can also acquire uh, pieces of DNA. So these are, are, these are the transmissible agents of, of resistance, potentially. Uh, and these can be in many forms, plasmids, transposons, and things of this nature. That part doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But they can also acquire those resistance. And that is how that um, you can get, if you're pressure with an antimicrobial, if you have a, a colony of bacteria that actually have that resistance gene either present, uh, either acquisition or otherwise, mm -hmm. that, that will survive in that pressure and continue to grow while the wild type, we'd say, would, would die off. Oh. And bacteria um, can trade this material amongst different species, uh, so promiscuous in that regard. And even dead bacteria can, uh, can transfect uh, other bacteria and acquire resistance. Oh. So that's kind of the backdrop there. And that leads us to uh, the whole issue with, say, our penicillin class or cephalosporins. Right. Um, there are many ways that, that bacteria naturally are going to protect themselves. The cell wall itself is to keep out certain things and keep things in contact. Gram positives have a certain structure, gram negatives, intrinsic resistance. But you can imagine that there's other strategies that have developed. One is, well, you can almost say, like destroying uh, the antimicrobial, right. which generally will bind a certain area and affect an integral part of the of bacteria, such as making the cell wall. If the cell wall uh, can't be made or broken, the bacteria will die. Mm -hmm. So you can secrete what they say an enzyme to destroy that, that antibiotic and render it useless. You can actually alter your target site so the bacteria no longer mm -hmm. attaches to the target it was designed for. You can pump it out. Uh, in terms of this nature, or you can render it uh, ineffective within the cell. Many strategies. Okay. The ones we focus on, such as uh, the enzymes that destroy the beta-lactamases, uh, is one. And when we talk about the two carbapenemases, it's a different, back, uh, a different enzyme that destroys that carbapenem class, which used to be our go-to right. uh, bug and probably was the first to be classified as what we'd say super bug or yeah, for resistance only. That's a lot of information. <laughs> well, maybe too much information. <laughs> That's but, a lot of information. But, but again, no such thing as a free lunch, right? Yeah, I mean, right. Um, there's, it's not a magic bullet per se. You're going to perturb your, um, your microflora in terms of this nature. There are also side effects, uh, sure. aside from C. diff. You know, people can get reactions, uh, interactions and things. To and antibiotics. To, to antibiotic treatment. Obviously, you're being treated for something, which is why we really are getting back to, you know, we really want to know, ideally, 
what we're treating, right, uh, right dose, right duration. Uh, and if you don't need antimicrobials, doesn't mean you're not feeling well, yes. but that, that's, we don't want to do any harm. That's still what we believe in. Okay, so I'm going to go back to treatments and all that good stuff, but I want to ask you one question. Is it in our food? So I think it's a great question, and this gets to, um, if we look at antimicrobial use in this country, um, most antimicrobials are not used for human consumption directly. Mm. Most antimicrobials are used in agribusiness or aquaculture, uh, and that is as usually growth promoters. So as you know, we produce a lot of beef, chicken, uh, and uh, pig, pork, mm. okay? And in America, there is a lot of antimicrobials used, not necessarily to treat infections, mm -hmm. but as growth promoters. Mm -hmm. And so maybe up to 80%. And some of those antibiotics um, obviously create resistant pathogens that can be found on the farm and the farmer and then back in the food chain. Yeah. And that is now an interest in terms of management. And so interesting studies are looking. So if you look at some of our fast food now, you're gonna see antibiotic-free, I mean, uh, because some, uh, the, uh, you know, which is a great way to change things, right? Yeah. If the consumers want something, uh, uh, usually U.S. manufacturers will meet that. Sure. So antibiotic-free chicken, um, and we don't grow our chickens now on antimicrobials, uh, so that's one start. Now, if you look at pork and beef, it's a little bit tougher targets because mm -hmm. chickens, by the time they're raised to harvest, it's about six weeks. For pigs, that might be six months, and beef even longer. Right. And so you're starting to see some movement there in terms of can we reduce the antimicrobial use, making sure they're not the same antimicrobials used for human consumption. And it's interesting, even last week, uh, it's interesting in Copenhagen, pork producers there do not use antimicrobials. Um, and how they get there is got to go back on the farm, animal husbandry, a little bit more room for their, for their sows and their pigs mm -hmm. in terms of this nature. In fact, they don't have to cut the tails off of their pigs because they have more room. In America, apparently, if you go on the pig farms, the tails are clipped oh, because, know <laughs> uh, you know, because of tight quarters. So again, non-pharmacologic interventions in terms of how we, how we produce our proteins and things, uh, I think can also help in terms of reducing uh, antimicrobial use sure. for non-human consumption. So it's, it's feasible. We just need to go back to the root of how we're raising these animals and breeding and all that good stuff. I think in probably consumer pressure. Um, okay. so yeah. if consumers say, look at, I'm willing to pay a little bit more or, right. or for this, um, you know, that may be probably the biggest lever lever in terms of, of that. And once that happens, uh, um, how could I say that? That's a big pressure. If you yeah. remember going back to the eighties, there was an E. coli, uh, 0157 outbreak in hamburgers in, in fast, yes. in a fast food restaurant. Now that's their brand. Uh, it turns out that Americans like their beef a little bit raw. But very quickly, they learned that at 147 degrees, uh, that will control that. Mm. Um, and so, again, nobody wants to be associated with a foodborne outbreak in, sure. the, in the food business sure. in terms of right. this nature. So that's the other target now is what we call biosecurity. So if you go on chicken farms now, um, it's, there is much more infection control practice there than many of the hospitals. Uh, you oh. don't walk into the coop. They, they keep, uh, you know, these are... Uh, how could I say that? Very controlled environment. They mm -hmm. don't want salmonella contaminating their, their egg layers or right. getting into the eggs. And they also use vaccines uh, okay. against the chickens to keep them, to keep that bile burden down, to keep us safer. Okay, that's, that's good news. So are there certain symptoms correlated with these superbugs? Or so, does it depend on... So I know? would say no. I would say, so from, from a clinician point of view, 
we, we talk about syndromes, yes. right? I mean, so someone's coming in with a sore throat, a cough. They might come in with, with evidence of what we'd say inflammation in their skin for a soft tissue infection in terms of this nature. Unfortunately, they don't come in with a forehead saying, I have pneumonia due to penicillin-resistant strep right. pneumonia. Oh, okay. I mean, we aren't, that's not, we're not there yet. I yeah. mean, maybe, uh, you know, if you've Near watched future. Star Trek, when he puts that thing there, we'll get there. We're not there yet. Sure. So what we have to do on the clinical side is um, we usually, uh, we don't have a specific, we have a, what we say is we treat empirically. We think based on a lot of factors, uh, time of season, other things going on, your medical history, where you may have been, what medications you are. We think this is the most likely syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, and especially if you're being admitted to the hospital, I want to err on the side of caution. I, we know that if you don't get effective antibiotics for an, for an infection, outcomes are worse in terms of time to effective therapy. So we tend to want to, I'm not going to say overtreat, but what we say cover broadly okay. uh, initially uh, if we don't, and then reassess uh, in terms of this nature. Maybe we'll get a answer from the laboratory, what it is, what it, what it isn't. And that is, I'd say, the feedback loop in terms of, of how we approach uh, patients sure. when we don't yet have the exact microbial diagnosis. And for many of the things we treat, we don't actually know uh, for sure. Right. Um, and again, patient outcomes are most important to us. Sure. We want our patients to get better. Now contrast that to the pressure, well, why are you using so much broad spectrum antibiotics? You know, that's a community resource. If you're using all this, you know, big, big guns on Mrs. Schlobotnik, what's gonna happen to, uh, you know, the community in terms of this nature? So you can see the yin and the yang as a clinician treating an individual uh, versus the community. And so where we're working in the hospitals, is something called stewardship, uh, trying to use understanding that we have sick patients. If I know what's circulating in the community, uh, in say Cleveland here, or that it's flu season or things of this nature, that will affect my choices, especially if I know from my micro lab what our resistance pattern is, mm -hmm. say at the Cleveland Clinic, to help inform my empiric choices. Then we say after 72 hours or so, you have an antimicrobial timeout, reassess, uh, what's the diagnosis, laboratory things, can you, you know, can you either, what we would say, narrow your spectrum, change your spectrum of antibiotics, or maybe even stop your antibiotics. Okay. So that's on the inpatient side. A lot of work and a lot of measurement. Mm -hmm. So we are measuring how many antimicrobials we're using by something called days of therapy and where we're using those. Prophylaxis, before surgery, empiric therapy, meaning we don't know what that is, or, or directed. And this is how I think you can affect change in terms of that. Now, outpatient is a bigger space, and that's where more antimicrobials are used. And this gets to what you said earlier. You, you or your child have a febrile illness. Um, you don't necessarily, you know, you don't necessarily know what it is mm -hmm. in terms of this nature, but you want something, or you want something for that child, or the daycare won't take the kid back unless right. he or she's on something. So there's a lot of pressure to prescribe. Yes. But 30% of the antibiotics we use in the outpatient are not necessary. Wow. So these are not that the patients aren't sick or feeling sick, but they are generally things that are not caused by bacteria, so won't respond to that. So whether it's you know viral uh, upper respiratory tract infections or things of this nature, or maybe things that aren't infectious. Mm -hmm. So that's a great opportunity, uh, but you can also see how we're trying uh, to get stewardship there mm -hmm. and making sure that the antimicrobials used are also directed toward what you think you're, you're treating uh, as opposed to using broad spectrum antimicrobials or not. Um, 
So this is this is good what you're saying. So let's say my daughter does have some kind of bacteria infection. The doctor gives her antibiotics. After 10 days, still doesn't work. What do you do after that if you are resistant? And so, how do I know if she is? <laughs> well, those are great questions. So I mean, questions. patients feel what they feel. I would say that for us, though, is um, the most important cornerstone for us on stewardship is, di is correct diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And this gets too interesting now because our, our, our laboratory techniques now are, are getting very good in terms of this with, you know, not to get in the weeds, but now we can have molecular diagnostics. And again, we have panels now potentially where, where you can not just test for a single pathogen, but an array of potential pathogens uh, for this syndrome, okay. whether it's the sore throat, whether it's the diarrheal. And again, all those are not gonna be responsive or need antimicrobials. So if I have an answer for you that isn't anti, you know, that isn't gonna respond to antimicrobial, I might say, look, it's just got to run its course, but uh, that might be more acceptable than mm -hmm. just treating, continue to treat the symptoms. Okay. So I think it is important for patients to understand um, what, are, what am I being treated for and how are you going to define success and is there any way, is there utilization to try to find the precise diagnosis. And our diagnostics are getting better now, um, and I think that, that is becoming important. And point-of-care tests now are also. It used to be you have to wait for the lab, now in our emergency departments, the technology is there that we, we can potentially have some point of care testing. So let's fast forward, flu season. If you've got a flu-like illness in flu season, um, chances are it's flu. It's flu. <laughs> I mean, and so you may not need a test you know, in terms of this nature. Right. Um, and I think that becomes important. On the other hand, we know that physicians with patients with flu, not in flu season or not when there's a lot of community, they're about 50% correct in making that diagnosis. Mm. So I think situation awareness is extremely important. Yeah, sounds like every uh, patient is also customized almost, right? Based on what bacteria they have, they could be resistant. It could be. I mean, and part of that is, is obviously what the host factors are. Sure. So are you a healthy host? Right. Are you a patient who's undergone a recent transplant or on a, on a immunosuppressed, um, how could I say that, agent? Have you traveled to some place? Is there anyone else sick? So that's why we still think history is important and, and kind of reviewing that. Um, sometimes on exam, there might be certain exanthems or things that will give someone a clue in terms of what this is or what this isn't. So we still are a big believer in physical exam in, in this regard. Um, and sometimes, obviously, you, you just don't know. And sometimes it is just let's watch and wait in terms of here. Okay, so can you uh, tell our listeners or our viewers how we can help tackle antibiotic resistance? And, you know, no. how to use antibiotics when they're giving to you? Because, you no. know, you, are you supposed to use them 10 days straight? What if you skipped? What do you do with the leftovers? <laughs> so, so hopefully, hopefully they're not leftovers. Remember, most of the time, uh, most, many patients are going to be treated for um, empirically, that is, without a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. For the kids with the sore throat, most we would recommend getting a, a group A strep test. Uh, okay. And sometimes that test may be pending. If it's negative, you can stop. If it's positive, you can continue okay. um, in terms of here. However, many things can appear to be infectious. So sinus is one example, seasonal or otherwise. Yes. Your sinuses, you feel this, you want something, uh, but oftentimes antibiotic is not what you need. Okay. The same thing for what we'd say upper respiratory tract infections or things that are caused by, uh, you know, caused by viruses, not by bacteria. Sure. Same thing for the kids with ears, with fevers. All that is not necessarily what we would say bacterial or titus. Mm -hmm. So our pediatricians are, are probably better overall than the adult side. And remember, too, where a lot of our patients are getting care now are urgent care centers, mm -hmm. all right? I mean, they're syndromic. They're not yeah. drop-dead sick. 
Uh, and so we're focusing also on our urgent care to review the protocols and things and to try to have that crucial conversation. Yes, I know you're feeling miserable, mm -hmm. but actually an, an antimicrobial is not indicated here, and this is why. That's, that's, I think that's very good information because a lot of us parents or even as patients, when you go to the doctor and you expect an antibiotic, just like you said, well, the, doctor, the, the teacher told me I can't bring my kid back until she's on some kind of medication, you know? So that is very, very good information. Um, so the focus sounds like it should be on keeping these germs from developing. So how do we take it all the way back? Talk about prevention. Okay, so I think there are different levels, as we said. You mm -hmm. need a strategy here, um, you know, and I think the different strategies are gonna be on a global level, on a national level, a state level, uh, and also on the individual level. And again, we need good metrics, we need surveillance. One thing that the CDC and WHO has done based on outbreaks and things is build capacity, right? Mm -hmm. So build your laboratory capacity, build your, your playbook. Um, it's not a culture of blame, it's more of a team of teams in terms of this nature. You want educated consumers in terms of this nature, mm -hmm. people to understand. You also want, uh, I think, to influence um, in terms of why are we using antimicrobials in, agri in agriculture? Is there a different way that, that's a win-win? Not shutting the businesses down, but moving and saying, yes, we, we will pay a little bit more for um, not having antibiotics in our, you know, raising shrimp or for our cattle or things of this nature. It's the right, potentially the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. At a local level, though, I, I go back. So what are the things? We, we want to focus on health and wellness and prevention. As an infectious disease clinician, I'd rather prevent an illness than treat it, right. uh, okay? I mean, I, I would uh, in terms of this nature. Put me out of a job. I'm fine <laughs> with that. On the other hand, so what can you do? So one is obviously uh, for health and wellness, we talk about uh, prevention of all things. Wear your seatbelts. Uh, you know, don't, don't smoke if you can, you know, try to quit smoking in terms of this thing. Things in moderation. Get your 10,000 steps in, in terms of this nature. Meditate, you know, I mean, so in terms of this. So I think those are basic things. Other is uh, periodic checkups. Make sure that you don't have anything going on, such as high blood pressure or things of this nature. So make sure that you have a, a clinician and that you're aware of that. Um, in terms of what you can do, obviously, whether you're in the home or whether you're in the hospital, look at when you're in a hospital, yeah, you want to make sure the healthcare workers are washing their hands. Mm -hmm. But when you're at a restaurant, you want your server to wash his or her hands as yes. well. I mean, this is basic stuff. Yes. In your own kitchen, I would ask you, what, what infection prevention are you practicing there? Are you double dipping? Are you cutting the raw meat with a knife and then cutting the vegetable? Are you keeping cold things cold, hot things hot, right? So look at your own kitchen and your practices in terms of this nature. Because um, once things get... Uh, how we say defrosted in things, you can still get cross-contamination occurring mm -hmm. there. Um, other things uh, we talked about, if you take your kids to the petting zoos or things of this nature, again, hand hygiene, right, yes. before and after. I'm not, I, you know, animals, I love animals. I'm not going to say don't sleep with your, your pets or things of this nature, um, although there was just a recent, I think, uh, report in CDC about Campylobacter associated with puppies bought in, oh. in things of, uh, you know, puppies in terms of, of pet stores. So I, I'm, a, I'm pro uh, pet. Yes. Um, and then vaccinations. So I think this is crucial. Um, you know, there's, how could I say that? I'm old enough uh, that when I was a medical student uh, in New York Hospital and rotating on peds, many of the children that survived the meningitis were, were very much impaired, and most of that was due to Haemophilus influenza. You ask, the, you ask the, the people now, the trainees, they've never seen a case. In fact, the developer of that vaccine uh, just died this week, Dr. Robbins. 
Um, and he was the first to, to develop an effective conjugate vaccine that was effective for two-month-olds, which is a very vulnerable population. Right. That effect itself, where there used to be maybe a half million deaths a year from this, and now it, in the United States it's one in a million, wow. is huge. Yes. Same thing yes. with our other vaccine preventables. Uh, and so uh, this is where I think we're moving. And when people forget about that, or our instance, our issues about measles, that can be very, very, how could I say, impact adversely. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think I'm pro-vaccine in terms of this nature. Mm -hmm. We now have anti-cancer vaccines. Hepatitis B can be viewed as an anti-cancer vaccine. Yeah. Human papillomavirus, HPV vaccine, mm -hmm. is really an anti-cancer vaccine, and we have within our wearable to eliminate that uh, through vaccination. And finally, the most common that we see is influenza uh, in terms of this. And so the, the flu vaccine doesn't cause a flu, but it certainly can mitigate or decrease that. And mm -hmm. so these are the types of things that we want uh, to get out there is that um, there is no better product in terms of this nature. That, that's still the best thing one can do for influenza in many of these other things uh, that used to cause or can cause so much morbidity and mortality. Good, good. Good information. So I want to talk about... New research. Are we working on any uh, new research creating new or more effective antibiotics? So it's a great question. I think um, one thing that, uh, you know, don't waste the crisis. It, mm -hmm. it, it creates innovation. And I think America and the world is very innovative. And this gets to the importance of basic research, mm -hmm. thinking out of the box a little bit and other things. And we're seeing that. So, yes, there are new antimicrobials being developed. Um, I think there's, as of June 19, 2019, 2019 maybe 44 uh, at least antimicrobials under investigation in you know either phase one or phase three. So things are coming. Mm -hmm. um, but there are also other different strategies um, in terms of looking at combinations of antimicrobials. There's one that is in study, uh, I call it the Iron Man, so I think it's called Sodoprasil, but it, it actually takes advantage of iron transport for some of these resistant gram negatives to get the antimicrobial within the cell, kind of a Trojan horse approach. Mm -hmm. So a lot of innovation going on on antimicrobials uh, in novel classes, so new classes in terms of this. Mm -hmm. um, there are other strategies though, um, so interesting. So many people may have heard about uh, fecal transplants for C. diff, so these are the live biologics. I interesting uh, things going on there. And again, the microbiome not just for altering for C. diff infections, but looking potentially for other disease states. Mm -hmm. A lot of activity going on that. So that's kind of the live biologic approach. You have adoptive immunity, so new antibody therapy directed at certain infections. Phage therapy, uh, which are genetically engineered viruses that can attack certain bacteria. So I think there's a lot on the, on the landscape that yeah. potentially is being looked at. Um, and I think that that becomes important. So I remain optimistic here okay. in terms of this nature that there will be new development uh, of, of different strategies. Now, is it likely that these germs in our body will also develop resistance to these new drugs? Oh, I think so. I mean, yeah. there's no such thing as, you know, um, but some of these are, are, are going to work on different mechanisms. And I think um, one of the things that we've learned in infectious disease and treatments, so such as things such as tuberculosis or chronic infections, such as hepatitis C or HIV, is um, there are different strategies um, to use more than one drug acting at a, at a different mechanism to prevent the underlying resistance from emerging. Mm. Um, and so that's why we see combination therapy in certain things like 
uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis or uh, hepatitis C as a combination pill in terms of this nature. And of course, we know HIV. We haven't cured HIV yet, but we've been able to control it uh, from, a res from emergence resistance using, again, effective combination therapy. Different um, antivirals working at different targets uh, to keep that, that, how can we say, keep the virus, which can mutate and replicate, but, but to do it in such a way that mathematically it becomes very difficult for it to overcome that barrier that you're empowering with your antivirals. So I'm going to leave you one more question. So the problem seems clear, and the solution is obvious, to prescribe antibiotics only when absolutely needed. Now, implementing this nationwide sounds like it'd be a hard task. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I do, but I think, you know, as you said, our goal, the goal is not necessarily to reduce antimicro... I mean, if I was to say it from a patient-centered point of view, it's about patient outcomes, yes. right? I mean, and in my practice, yes, there are probably times I'm over-prescribing, uh, you know, if someone does the Monday morning review, the Monday morning quarterback, mm -hmm. but, but uh, you know, that's okay. We accept some of that. I mean, I think what you want is mindful, mindful prescribing, right? Mindful so, prescribing. It's, you know, if you're given a prescription for anything, mm -hmm. I think you want to ask the provider, um, okay, I'm, I know what this is, you're going to go over the side effects, but what, what is this for and how are we going to define success here? Right. You know, is it a number for your cholesterol? Is it um, time for me to feel better in terms of this? So that you understand, I think we all understand what, what the purpose of any medication that we're putting into our mouths or being yes. injected for and understanding uh, the potential complications. I think, again, um, we're moving toward, it's a multi, it's multiple team of team approach. You know, our laboratory in terms of giving us uh, different testing for resistance, resistant genes, surveillance going on. So we get reports from our local county health departments from the state in terms of what's circulating um, and, and, and then kind of just reports. So it's all about information and then acting on that information to hopefully decrease and mitigate uh, harm for our patients. Great. Thank you. Thank you. This is all the time that we have today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. There's a lot of information I need to take in. So this is very, very good. Thank you so much. And thank you again to our listeners who joined us today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. For more information, you can go to clevelandclinic.org slash infectious disease. And to listen to more of our health essential podcasts from Cleveland Clinic experts, make sure you go to clevelandclinic.org slash HE podcast. And for more health tips, news, and information from Cleveland Clinic, make sure you're following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Cleveland Clinic, just one word. Thank you. I'll see you again next time. This concludes this Cleveland Clinic Health Essentials podcast. Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.